Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Today, it's great to chat with Narina Hertz on the podcast. Narina is a renowned thought leader, academic, and broadcaster, named by The Observer as one of the world's leading thinkers, and by Vogue as one of the world's most inspiring women. Her previous bestsellers, The Silent Takeover, The Debt Threat, and Eyes Wide Open, have been published in more than 20 countries, and her opinion pieces have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and Financial Times. She has hosted her own show on SiriusXM and spoken at TED, the World Economic Forum in Davos, and Google Zeitgeist. Her latest book is called The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World That's Pulling Apart. Irina, I'm really excited to chat with you today. Oh, I'm so happy to be on your show. Really was looking forward, really have been looking forward to this talk for for a long time. Uh, Well, such a timely and important book, as you know. Uh, I mean, why did you, well, let me ask you, why did you write this book? So it was three separate things happening at roughly the same time about four years ago. First, it was my students. Uh, More and more students were coming into my office in office hours and confiding in me that they were feeling lonely and isolated. And I'd been teaching at university for about 20 years on and off. I hadn't seen, you know, I hadn't seen this phenomenon and definitely not in the numbers that were coming into my office. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. Something's going on here, something concerning. And then at the same time in my research, I was investigating the rise of right-wing populism across the globe, rise of leaders like Trump in the United States or Le Pen in France, Salvini in Italy. 
I wanted to understand why people were voting for these politicians. And I started interviewing right-wing populist voters across the globe. And one thing that came out time and time again from their stories was how lonely and isolated they felt. Mm. So here was loneliness again, popping up, but in a very different realm. And then I had bought an Alexa, an Amazon Alexa. And I noted that I was becoming increasingly attached to my Alexa and you know, feeling increasingly close to this device in my kitchen, which got me thinking about what I came to call the loneliness economy, an entire market for goods and services designed really to alleviate loneliness, deliver connection, or at best deliver community. And I thought, well, this is a growing market, the market's speaking, i.e. there's increasing numbers of people who are looking for connection, looking mm -hmm. for connection with their Alexas, looking for connection via populist political parties, or looking for connection when they were young and not finding it, like my students. And I started really digging into the subject, loneliness, and and was struck very quickly at just how significant and extensive a problem it was with one in five Americans often or always feeling lonely, one in five millennials saying that they didn't have a single friend, 40% of office workers saying that they were lonely at work. Um, and I realized this was something very significant that merited spending the next two years really digging into in depth. I'm glad you did. And I, I can really resonate with the Alexa thing. Um, uh, she, she, I guess it's a female voice, has been um, uh, my source of sunshine every morning. Good morning, Scott. Here's the here's the new uh, news of the day. And then she has a favorite joke of the day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I know. I mean, me too. It's She's a definite addition to our household. And in fact, um, I have a two-year-old niece and my sister-in-law told me that last week they were making cards um, in an activity with the with, with the kid. They were making greet, greeting cards for friends and family. And, and the mother said, uh, oh, who should we make a card for next? And the kid said, Alexa. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> So in your book, you make an interesting argument. You say that loneliness is not an only issue. It's not only an issue of mental health. Um, there's also um, economics and uh, politics involved in this. You know, what do you estimate is the, um, the full extent of this problem, even beyond the mental health issue? So we know, you know, as, as you know all too well, that loneliness is bad for our mental health and that there is a link between loneliness and anxiety and loneliness and depression and even loneliness and suicide. We also know that loneliness is bad for our physical health, um, you know, manifesting in higher blood pressure, higher levels of cort cortisol, stress hormones in our body, um, higher um, pulse rates, all of these essentially not good for our body to be in a state of for protracted periods, as loneliness often is for many, um, which is why loneliness can even reduce our life expectancy by as much as um, make our risk of dying prematurely um, be as much as 30% higher than if you're not lonely. So, um, but as you say, it's not just health 
that it affects. Loneliness is also bad for our wealth, bad for our wealth collectively, in part because of the um, cost, the healthcare burden, the healthcare burden um, that loneliness puts on our public health systems, but also because loneliness is bad for the workplace. Lonely workers are less efficient, less motivated, less productive, and more likely to quit a company than workers who aren't. In fact, the single biggest determinant for whether somebody will remain at a company or not is whether they have a friend at work. Uh, so loneliness is a really significant business problem as well. And also, as I found in my research, um, inexorably linked to the rise of right-wing populism in recent years. I'm not saying, of course, that everyone who's lonely votes for populists of the right. Of course, they don't. But a significant coterie of those who do are lonely. Lonely in the sense of have uh, more limited social networks, um, much weaker support systems, so weaker ties with friends, fewer acquaintances even. Um, fewer people to rely upon in times of need, but also lonely in the sense of feeling invisible, feeling unseen, feeling unheard, feeling disconnected not only from their friends and family, but also from their fellow citizens and from mainstream politicians. And of course, right-wing populists like Trump played incredibly effectively to this, speaking to this craving for community with their rallies and their um, spectacles, their theatres of community that they put on, but also speaking directly to this sense of forsakenness that so many people felt. You, know, you the forgotten people, I am seeing and hearing you, was rhetoric you would hear from Trump, but also from Le Pen in France and from Salvini in Italy. I thought that was really uh, an interesting point in your book about how uh, a lot of only people uh, might be more attracted to populism. Could you just uh, could you see it being the case that people who are lonely are just craving the need for belonging in lots of different ways? I mean, couldn't one make the case that like people who are want to be part of Antifa on the le on the extreme far left as well also are extremely lonely? I mean, not to just single out. I don't want to just single out yes. Trump supporters, but I mean, on any of the extremes, even the extreme left, couldn't one argue that? extreme loneliness is causing people to be more extreme than than maybe they would have been in the past. Definitely. And um, I think right-wing populists have been particularly good at speaking to that, which is why mm. we see this stronger link with right-wing populists. But mm. there's no reason why it's necessarily so. And it, there are groups of people who are seeking belonging and they will go to wherever they find it, whether it is on the right or the left, whether it's on Reddit, the game um, the Game Stoppers um, who congregated oh, yeah. on Reddit or whether it was the group who stormed the Capitol. I mean, you know, what these groups have in common or the incels um, mm. who are finding community, what these groups have in common is that they're populated with lonely people who are looking for belonging and looking for a sense of identity and looking to be seen and heard and they're finding it there. And that's, you know, the challenge, centrist um, people of the centre have, you know, how do how do we deliver a sense of community and belonging? Um, well, ironically, I, I am I am a centrist, and I feel like ironically, centrists are feeling more and more lonely 
because <laughs> because everyone's moving to the extremes. So so the people in the center are the loneliest of them all now. <laughs> oh, well, maybe that's maybe that's a good a good state of affairs because maybe that's when we'll see real change and change that will be positively impactful for many. Well, I sure hope so. Well, you know, th- th- and that's what we really do care about. You know, how can we make sure that everyone is able to give and receive care? Um, you, you talk about that a little bit in your book. Um, I'd love to hear some of your your thoughts on some some practical um, things, and also which dimensions are under our control. Yes. So, um, so, uh, so the question of care. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an important one to spend a little bit of time on because, you know, what we've really seen over the past few decades has been a steady devaluing of qualities like compassion and care and instead a hypervalorization of qualities like competitiveness and determination and you know we see this in terms of what jobs are valued in society people who care for others are typically actually paid below market um, rates as compared to people who, you know, are delivering um, efficiency and those sorts of qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it in terms of how people are rewarded at work. Um, you know, in most companies, qualities like kindness and care are not explicitly rewarded. Um, and we see it in how we treat each other and what we value in each other. Because what I argue is that over the past few decades, we've essentially become increasingly individualistic, increasingly recast ourselves from citizens to consumers, from collaborators to competitors, from um, really from helpers to hustlers, increasingly seen ourselves in those ways and being increasingly I-focused, me-focused, which of course inevitably was going to make us lonelier. So when we're thinking about the solutions and how to come together again, part of it is about revaluing as a society qualities like care and compassion and acknowledging the importance of community as well, of course. And some companies are actually making some inroads on that front. I was inspired Um, in conversations with Cisco, the global technology company, to discover that they actually have a scheme in their company whereby anyone up and down the organization from cleaner to CEO can nominate anyone else in the company for a cash reward between $100 and $10,000 for doing something particularly kind or helpful or nice. So this is a company really saying, you know, we value it and we're putting our money where our mouth is and Cisco has considerably lower turnover than the industry average interestingly and also was voted the best company in the world to work for by its employees for two years running so um, if we think of these qualities as sometimes we mistakenly can think of these qualities as being inimicable to success and yet they actually can help drive success um agreed when it comes just kind of on community i think one thing um i'm sure we've got so much more we can talk about but just on community Mm. because i think one of the things that really struck me 
as I thought about it and as I looked at the research was the extent to which really since the financial crisis, and this is true across the globe, but in the United States as well, we've really seen a defunding of what we might think of as the infrastructure of community, of public libraries, of public parks, of youth clubs, of elderly daycare centres. And yet people need physical spaces to be together, to do things together, if we are to feel not only less alone, but to come together as societies. In the United States, public libraries have seen a 40% decrease in public funding, in federal funding since 2008, 40%. And so again, it's as we think about how to reconnect, how to feel less lonely, and importantly, how to come together again, there are clearly elements of this which will need government attention, including, as a matter of urgency, refunding this infrastructure of community that has been so badly eroded over the past few decades. It's such a good point. I mean, the community part is such a good point, and and uh, and the fact that we should be putting more economic resources towards taking this issue seriously. Um, uh, but, you know, I also asked you, you know, what's under our control? Because there, it's not, I, I don't think that we're completely helpless victims. Um, so uh, what do you think we can do, you know, to, to yeah. try to get, get change our, uh, well, increase our, our connection with others? Yes, I totally agree. We are not helpless victims and there is so much we can do. And my book's full of ideas. Just, just sure to is. make Maybe just to point to just a few. Um, you know, one thing obviously we can do is we can, we're also responsible for the communities in which we live in. This isn't only about state funding or federal funding of communities. We need to actively nurture our own communities and you know, buy in our local shops, support our local independent stores go to our local cafes. Um, don't be careful not to trade off the convenience of a contactless existence where we order our food on Grubhub and order our groceries online um, and do our yoga with Adrienne. Be careful not to trade that off for community. Of course, during the pandemic, you know, we were very grateful we could we could live that way. But moving forward as we come out of it, really important to do that, to commit to those in-person, face-to-face interactions in our neighborhoods. Um, partly because even a 30-second exchange with a barista in our local cafe will make us feel happier as well as more connected and less lonely, but partly because it's through those exchanges, it's through figuring out where to put your mat in the yoga class and making sure not to downward dog in front of someone's face. It's it's through those moments in the grocery store when you're wheeling your trolley and you're being careful not to bump into someone that we're practicing the skills that underpin community and indeed inclusive democracy skills of reciprocity, civility, thinking about others and not only ourselves. So that's that's something we really can do. And also, if maybe there are events that your local community is putting on. Show up at them. Initiate your own events yourself. You know, I was someone, Scott, who 
before the pandemic and before I started writing my book, I I didn't appreciate enough the importance of my local community. Um, you know, I was go, 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 traveling around the world the whole time, spending endless time on in hotels, on airplanes. Um, and I didn't, I didn't do um these things that as I was writing my book, I realized were actually negative for myself as well as for the environment in which I live in. You know, I didn't stop and exchange 10 words with the postman as I saw him. I didn't stop and say hello to my neighbor as I walked by. I just, you know, kind of blindly went on with my own life as many of us do. And writing my book and researching it and really thinking about how important these small interactions are made me change how I behaved. And of course, in the pandemic and when we were locked down, um, I think many of us became extremely appreciative of our local environments, our local neighbours, um, our local cafes. You know, many of these, many of our local stores were heroes during the pandemic, um, really kept us going. So that's, so that's one thing we can do. Another, another thing that we can do, although I do think there's a role for government here as well, um, is try and put our phones down more and be more present with each other. It's really hard to do because these are devices, social media designed to be addictive, and it sure is. So um, it's hard to do, but, um, but, but what I found in my research was that even, I find this a fascinating study, even when a couple have a smartphone on a table in front of them, even when the smartphone's turned off, and even when neither of them are touching it, the couple feel less connected to each other and less empathetic. And, you know, add layer upon that social media and how distracting that is and absorbing. And, you know, it's no wonder that you can often feel quite alone despite being in a room full of people when your head's in your phone. So I try and I put my phone in a basket in the evening so that it's literally not in arm's reach because if it is in arm's reach I will reach out for it um but but I and I try and do spend one day a week where I stay off all all my, all my devices but I do think um the addiction is such that I do think there's a role for government here too and, and that in many ways social media companies are the tobacco companies of the 21st century and should be regulated as such and that that's something I call for um so much more that we can do and we can talk about as individuals for sure and we can talk about more or more Scott or <laughs> <laughs> well let me let me pick up this uh, particular thread you're talking about the you used the word civility uh is it think in a lot of ways these technology is um is designed to to bring out more divisiveness as opposed to the connection kind of the way the algorithms work they they kind of like want to fuel the controversy um so uh not just in the social media realm but also like you talk about how more densely populated cities tend to be less civil you know yes. like i mean it's amazing we don't even think about you know how structures can be uh designed or can influence us in being more or less civil could you talk a little bit about why even um the 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 population of a city and how densely 
populated is can it can impact something like that yes um well it's a bit like um it's a bit like when you go to a supermarket and you see a row of jam jars on a shelf you know if you see 50 jam jars on a shelf you actually your brain just thinks I can't really cope and it becomes the thought of which one to pick becomes actually can actually become quite stressful and you might easily decide you know I'm not going to buy jam um but you go to your um, local corner store and there's only six to choose from. It's much easier to go and pick one. Well, that's a bit what living in densely populated um, environments can feel like, where you're just overwhelmed with the amount of people around you, that actually it can just feel easier to put your noise-cancelling headphones on, um, keep your head down, um, don't really look anyone in the eye and walk by. So it's partly a matter of scale. But there's also research that shows that the richer a country is, the faster its citizens walk. And that's that's another um, challenge because, of course, walking fast, you, know, you don't take that time, that beat to have those conversations. Um, I talked about that really actually make a difference to how connected we feel, those micro exchanges that actually matter. Um, but more generally, the way we've designed our cities is um, all too frequently designed for cars rather than for people. And, and that comes at a cost as well. There's actually a scheme going on in Barcelona in Spain where they've designated these superblocks. This was even before the pandemic. So these big areas which have been pedestrianized, no cars were allowed to drive in. And what they found was just a massive uptick in how connected people felt to other people in the neighborhood. Um, you know, kids could play on the streets. People were able to hang out. They weren't worried about um, getting run over by cars. And um, researchers have found that streets with less um, less car flow have as much as three times stronger relationships between people on those streets than cars which have uh, than streets which have a lot of cars driving by them. Wow, I mean, people don't think about this kind of stuff. I'm so glad you're pointing this out. It's a, it's incredible. Um, but there are these blue zones. Um, where there's, uh, you know, we, we, can, we can design things to alleviate loneliness as well. We can have societies that do it right. So let's, let's talk a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling depressed. Let's, <laughs> let's talk oh, about, <laughs> good, 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 good. Let's, let's talk about some positive. Uh, yes. <laughs> let's yes. talk about the blue zones. Let's talk about the blue zones. Don't, don't be depressed because, um, you know, this Thanks, book Serena. is actually a really optimistic bit because there's so much hope in it because I know there's so many examples of, there's so many examples of things that actually can, that I we know. can do as individuals, as businesses, and as governments. So one of the fascinating um, things I found in my research was that there are some communities who are um, not only significantly less lonely than others, but whose, um, whose members live considerably longer than others. And um, in geographic other people who've found, who've looked at similar phenomenons have coined um, a term blue zones um, for some of these areas. Um, there are areas like um, in California where Seventh-day Adventists live. 
um, in um, Japan, where the um, Okinawa live. But I found, I looked at my research at a group that is less researched, and this is the Haredim, the ultra-religious Orthodox Jews um, in Israel. Uh, so you may be familiar with this group of people. They are the um, group who the men typically wear black hats and kind of black coats, and the women are very modestly dressed. Uh, and what was fascinating about this group is that in all conventional measures of health and kind of how people should live their lives health-wise, this group was not doing great. I mean, they ate, they eat fatty, um, fried, very tasty food, but, you know, not, not kind of um, dietetic um, food. This is a group that exercises less than the average Israeli. Um, they're actually very they're significantly deprived of vitamin d because they're so well covered even though they're living in israel they um don't get sunlight so you know eat less healthily more likely to be obese uh don't get vitamin d don't exercise as much you'd think that this group would live shorter lives than the average israeli but actually they live longer lives they have considerably longer what? life expectancy. <laughs> which is absolutely what a curveball what a curveball yeah. that was fascinating and the researchers who've studied this really believe that it's the community it's the bonds between them which is giving them longer lives um you know this is a group who they do a lot together they go to um bar mitzvahs and passover seders and celebrate hanukkah and purim uh, together, so they're you know often Friday nights with big groups of people gathered round tables. So they do a lot with other people, and they're also there for each other in times of need, um, provided of course that you're somebody who conforms to the norms of the community. If you don't, you're excluded pretty fast. But for those who do conform, you know they really are there for each other in times of need. If someone's sick. They know that they can call on others. If someone's in financial distress, they know that there are people to go to. And it's these bonds, it's these ties, it's the sense that they're looking out for each other, um, which is thought to deliver this health dividend. And there have been other um, researchers who've looked at the role um, religion plays in um, health and they've also found, interestingly, um, people who were looking at Catholics and health also found that um, there were particular groups of Catholics who lived longer lives. But interestingly, it wasn't people who just believed in God or the doctrines. It was people who regularly went to church. So it was, again, it was about the community. It was about being part of the community that that delivered a health dividend. And there's been other research, you know, on the fact that when you help others, it's not only good for them, but it's also good for you. The people who don't help others actually live less long than people who do. So, yeah, this is, so there is a health dividend, um, a meaningful health dividend, if we feel 
more connected to others and 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 more embedded in a community and it's part of the reason in the united states you know um that we see these areas where there are what are called deaths of despair that often these Mm -hmm. are in places where you know the communities have broken down totally and i really love the, the 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 you know what they do in ikaria you know and the fact that they uh, some they say they live to a hundred and they and they say well we forget to die because the way they treat their old people there is they don't shun them like we do in in America uh, in Western societies you know um, it, it, when people are above a certain age it's sort of we forget about them you know and uh, yeah. and we we we, we we need to integrate them into the community. For sure. I mean, it's a heartbreaking statistic. In the United States, 60% of nursing home residents never have a single visitor at all. See, you don't make me cry. I mean, that's just like horrible. It's just horrible. And it's just, I don't know why we, why we, um, why we don't actually see the wisdom that they have. I mean, I'm, I, I try, I try to get as many people over the age of 90 on my podcast as possible. Um, I know that sounds funny, but like this no, year I've funny. had Noam Chomsky. I've had, yeah, but just, there's so much wisdom of people um, who, you know, I'm, I have Jane O'Connor who's, well, he's approaching 90s, 87. Yeah. Uh, just people who, um, there's such great wisdom, you know, of, of our elders. Um, it, they don't have to win a Nobel Prize in order to have wisdom. I mean, just, you know, like my grandmom had more wisdom than maybe a lot of Nobel Prize winners <laughs> just from her own sort of just uh, life experiences and it's just it's a shame it's a shame and it's but it's not just in the west this is going on i mean in my book i write about how in japan the fastest growing demographic who are being incarcerated are retirees and that's because um so many um elderly people there uh, or considerable numbers of elderly people there are feeling so lonely and so abandoned by their families that they're intentionally committing crimes like shoplifting just in order to be jailed yeah. so that they can find company and companionship somewhere. Mind-boggling. So, yeah. But then on a positive, because we don't want to feel negative, um, in South Korea they have a wonderful scheme um, called Colatex. Um, so this is private businesses. Colatex, which is a an amalgamation of the word cola, like Coca-Cola, and discotheque. And these are daytime discos for elderly people. And <laughs> thousands of elderly people dance <coughs> by day at these I love that. daytime cola techs. And the entry fees are pretty low. Um, you know, they're operating at scale, so they can afford to keep the um, price of the entry fee low and still uh, make a good return, and you know, I love, I love that thought. I love that thought of being old and going to dance in discos by day. I love it. Well, I'm sometimes I go to the dance clubs. You know, even you know, like the standard dance clubs where there's 20 year olds, whatever. And and you have and you see 80 year olds there. You know, uh, so every now and then you see an 80 year old couple coming. You know, I want to be you know 80. Um, you know, and and me and my partner, you know, go to the dance clubs, you know, with everyone else, you know, why do we just have to dance with other 80 year olds? You know, why can't we, you know, the whole point there is integration, you know? Yes. Um, So in the UK, I don't know if there is a similar scheme in the United States, but in the UK, there is, um, an organization which does actually do pair young and old 
intentionally um, for dancing. Um, Amazing. And that, yeah, which is which is lovely. But you're right. We need to be um, one of the messages of my book. One of the important messages is about our need to do more with people who are not like us. So people of different ages, people of different ethnicities, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people with different belief systems. We, you know, we're only as a society going to be able to heal our divides and come together if we get better at doing things with people who are not like us. So it can be dancing, it can be cooking, um, it can even be just sharing our stories. There's um, a story I write in my book, I write about in my book, which was uh, initiated by a German newspaper, Die Zeit, and the journalists were. They really wanted to, they were very concerned about the growing um, polarization of political debate in Germany, something you know we can relate to in other countries too. And they came up with this scheme whereby it was like a political Tinder, where they matched up um, people with significantly different political views. So, you know, they issued a call across Germany, thousands of people joined the scheme and then they matched up so people who were anti-immigration with people who were pro-immigration people who were who wanted Germany to leave um, Europe the EU for people who didn't um, really different socioeconomic groups trade unionists with CEOs uh, asylum seekers with anti-immigration um, spokespeople and all across the country these pairs met up and they just had to meet up for two hours. That was all they had to do and talk. Mm. And the outcomes were astounding. Just after just two hours, so such a short amount of time, the participants were significantly more aware of what they had in common, of what they shared, nice. the concerns that they shared. Often it was their own family, you know, concerns over their own family. They also said that they would be much more likely to invite someone like that to a social gathering. And interestingly, they said that they trusted Germans in general considerably more than when they'd been asked that question before the survey. That's huge. And that's just, that's just speaking together. But if you layer up on that doing things together, you know, the impact the impact is real and significant and lasting. And, and that's something which we can initiate, um, where we can participate in. But it's also something where I think there is a role for government as well. And in France, for example, before the pandemic, they trialed um, like a kind of civic service for teenagers where they put together um, teenagers from really different backgrounds and they had to live together for a couple of months, um, work out how to live together successfully, work together, do voluntary work. And again, a scheme which had really exciting um, results. So you know, there are structural ways we can replicate these kind of coming togethers too as well. Wonderful. Any of the things that you described, are they related to mukbang? Ah, uh, so mukbang is something else that I write about. Okay, yes, because you wrote about that. That was very interesting in the findings on that. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yes, because we've, we've touched upon eating together and we'll come back to that. Mukbang is 
eating together, but in a rather unusual way. So um, it's the practice of watching someone on screen eat and um, participating with them by perhaps sending the equivalent of likes, balloons to them um, or little messages to them. And it's a practice that's really been growing in popularity, um, particularly in uh, Asia, but also increasingly in the United States and in Europe as well. This practice of watching people eat, often it is copious amounts of food, but not necessarily. And often people are doing it as they're sitting at home on their own, eating dinner by themselves, because mm. that's another part of the reason we are so much lonelier today than in the past. It's because we just do much less with other people than in the past. We are more likely to eat on our own, live on our own, be less likely to be members of a trade union, less likely to be members of a church or a parent-teacher association. But yes, Bank is watching these people eat and quasi-participating um, in the process. What is fascinating, though, is that face-to-face -to -face eating together, so really eating with real people, um, is a really proven way for feeling much more bonded to others. Um, and also, interestingly, um, pays off in the workplace as well, because there was research done in Chicago with firefighters, and the researchers wanted to understand why some certain companies of firefighters perform better than others. And what they found was that companies of firefighters who ate together performed twice as well as companies who didn't. So they felt much more bonded to each other and that delivered in terms of better performance. So eating together and eating together, um, you know, again, is a way of bringing, you can use it to bring different types of people together. I also talk about in my book, a scheme in the United Kingdom in Bristol, where a regular where they have re regular gatherings where people from all different ethnicities and backgrounds come together and cook together and share their own dishes and recipes and through talking about food and eating together they share their own stories and histories um food is you know historically breaking bread together you know has been a way for people to come together and so there's something quite sad at the thought of people now sitting at home, watching a screen and having a um, kind of only quasi connection with someone else at the end of the screen, the muckbangers. But on the other hand, arguably better than just sitting in the room on your own and not even having that interaction at all. Mm. Absolutely. And uh, it, I mean, I was amazed just reading your book, all the all the different things that people um, can do to increase their connection, uh, manufactured connection, I, I should call it, you know, such as um, paying people to hug you. Right there, there, there. That's a that's a field. That's a field, you know, a, a career, a career yeah. one one can have is to be a professional hugger. Uh <laughs> yes. Um, actually, not too far from where you're based um, mm. is where I met in Venice Beach is where I met Jean, who is a mm. professional cuddler. And um, Jean told me that this is before the pandemic. Presumably, it was put somewhat on pause during the pandemic. But um, before the pandemic, she said that, you know, real growing 
industry. Uh, they had the most ever professional cuddlers at that year's Las Vegas convention for professional cuddlers. Um, and I actually checked out in Venice Beach uh, a cuddling session where you pay and it's a group cuddling session at a place called the Cuddle Sanctuary. And Aptal, apt name. Probably, yes. And, you know, I didn't really know what to expect before I went. And um, to be honest, it probably didn't play that well to my British reserve. Mm. And yet, um, not, not perhaps my cup of tea, but it was, you know, I could see that it could play a really helpful role um, for people. And what was so interesting was just how diverse the people who were attending the session were. They just looked like people who were showing up at, you know, at your weekly yoga class, you know, wearing kind of sweatpants and things, a real array of people, a university administrator, a um, aspiring film directress, a divorcee who just moved to Los Angeles, but people who just felt lonely, craving intimacy and connection, craving, you know, something as basic as touch, you know, very mm. fundamental human need to be held, to be touched, and, you know, went and found a place to do it um, in a consensual way um, right. where they can meet that need. There was one person I met though through this journey who um, had, you know, taken this to the extreme, Carl, because you know this was a nice-looking man. I met him in Beverly Hills at the Starbucks um, in his early fifties. Told me about how he'd moved to Los Angeles, felt very lonely um he was working for a media company earning a good salary but found you know, it was very hard to meet new people having moved into town he was divorced and he started actually seeing gene which is how i met him gene the cuddler um and he said it transformed his life he felt so much happier so much less alone so much more productive and then he said to me, are you using my real name in your book? And I said, no, I'm changing it. And he said, well, then I, you know, can I tell you something? In recent months, I haven't just been seeing Jean. It hasn't been enough. I've actually been seeing other people to cuddle me. And I said, oh, gosh, that must be really expensive. And he said, yes, it is. And do you know how I'm paying for it? And I said, no. And he said, I live in my car. And this is a man in his 50s earning a good salary working for a major media company who is so lonely so starving closeness that he is living in his car showering at the 24 7 gym leaving his food in the refrigerator at work just to be able to have those moments of connection it's obviously an extreme case, but when we know that one in five millennials say that they don't have a single friend at all, when we know that 40% of office workers are feeling lonely at work, you know, it raises really big questions about what kind of a society we've created um, that's manifesting in this way. In this way. Absolutely. It uh, also just, just makes me think, like, is, is he addicted to hugs? Like, does he need an intervention? Like, 
that that seems so extreme that is well this is the psychologist in me i'm on brand i'm on brand by asking that question but is he has he become too too attached to the to the hug for sure it's a, i'm sure it's a legitimate question in that case to be asking but as we subcontract um care and some um, hugs and even friendship to the market you know, I think there is a danger that um, more people will risk finding their needs met in these ways instead of um, in what we might think of as more traditional kind of real ways of connecting. I, for example, uh, another thing I experimented um, I, as part of my research with um, was I rented a friend in New York. You can rent mm. friends. I rented Brittany for three hours. Hmm. We um, one had drank matcha tea together in downtown Manhattan. We went to a bookstore. We went to Urban Outfitters and tried on sunglasses and hats. I mean, obviously, it wasn't like being with an old friend, but it was it was a fun experience. It was like being with a new friend, someone who laughed at all my jokes and seemed to find me very interesting. Of course, she did. Well, I'll give you that for free (laughs) or half the price, half the price of what you paid Brittany. That's that's a deal. Well, she was $40 an hour, so $20, I'm yours. Um, And on the one hand, you know, these market interventions, whether it is Alexa, you know, being my friend or Brittany being my friend, on the one hand, you know, there's something positive here that, you know, for people who feel lonely, there are these ways um, that you can find connection. Um, and with elderly people, um, one of these social robot companies, LEQ, an Israeli startup, they shipped thousands of these little social robots to Floridians during the pandemic who were self-isolating to elderly Floridians. And their testimonies are very heartwarming of people saying, I would have felt so lonely had I not had my LEQ robot with me. So on the one hand, the market actually does offer some kind of exciting ways the loneliness economy can help mitigate loneliness. And yet, if we were to replace um, traditional human relationships with ones we could buy, the danger is that what we're doing is we're firstly replacing relationships where we have to give and take, where we have to be mindful of the other with relationships that really don't demand that of us. And um, and, the, and the danger is, of course, that when these substitute products become um, even more compelling, that we choose them over these flesh and blood normal relationships, which demand so much more of us and therefore end up really isolating ourselves even more so um yeah yeah, so it's it's double-edged i'm excited on the one hand by the opportunity the market provides especially when it comes to um creating spaces for people to come together the secular cathedrals of the 21st century i think the market really does have an exciting role to play there um and to some degree i'm excited about the role that artificial intelligence and social robots can play in um, alleviating loneliness, especially amongst the elderly in Japan, where the take up of this is um, 
is significant. You, know, you see elderly women knitting bonnets for their robot carers. Yeah, it's, it's a thinking error to assume that people can't um, feel connected to an inanimate object. I mean, do you have, are they called Roombas in America as well? Those little vacuum, those round vacuum cleaners? Oh, yeah. Do you know what yeah. they are? They're like yeah. Roombas, vacuum cleaners. Yeah. People become so attached to them that one in 10 give them names. <laughs> one in 10 create costumes for them, which I find fascinating. And some people even take them on holiday. And those are just little vacuum cleaners. So we can become attached to these objects, but the quest, and that can be a, and that can be good for us as individuals if we're feeling lonely. But it does raise kind of interesting questions about what kind of a society would we be if we were to substitute human relationships for robot ones. Um, so maybe the challenge for us is to always be more human than the best robots, more caring, more compassionate, use the existence and the ever-growing um, prevalence of these robots as a reason to make ourselves um, out human, the robot. It's very interesting because you, you do talk about the implications of creating more human-like AI and how it could mm -hmm. reduce our empathy. Um, for other humans. I mean, you get you get, get to the point where you could imagine a wife being told a husband, why can't you be more like my robot? <laughs> my robot listens to me all the time and does everything I want. How come you don't do more of that? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Once we start comparing, yeah. we don't want to start comparing our fellow in messy humans, imperfect humans to these perfect robots who take care of all of our needs. <laughs> yes. And also as emotional AI becomes more advanced, you know, we'll, you know, much faster than our loving, kind, however loving and kind our spouse or partner may be. You know, we'll be able to just from the blink of our eyes, from the first kind of sound that it hears, be able to figure out our mood, how we're feeling, what we want in a way that a human will never be. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's it's uh, it's exciting to think that uh, these kinds of robots are all, all on the horizon, but it's also kind of scary. I mean. We didn't even talk about sex robots. I mean, that's a whole thing that's that's coming down the pipeline. And um, and and I mean, I I have uh, sex worker friends who tell me that uh, most of the um, clients that they see, they don't even want sex. They just want it. They just want a connection. And yes. I think that that's not discussed that frequently. Yes. That's so true. And and it's the same finding actually from sex robot manufacturers who say that one of the things that they're finding is the number of people who are buying a sex robot doll um, not to have intercourse with, but actually to be their friend. And some of them are marketing it, their robot, their sex robot dolls, very much in that way. There was some very weird, eerie um, advert that I saw, which had pictures of the sex robot doll kind of perched um, on in a park, like having a picnic in inverted commas with with their owner um watching television next to the owner wow. so yeah yeah well i'm really glad that you have this conversation started and it's one that we need to be having more of as a society especially especially as um we get more technologies that uh try to fulfill this need concomitant with lack of the real need in the real world and it's it's this is going to 
this is going to be just such an important conversation to continue. Narina, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for the great work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience and would like early access to new episodes, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.